So for those of you who don't know me, I'm Juan. Um, I've been coming to Forefront for over a year now, and as Mira mentioned, I host a small group, and I host a small group in Park Slope. Um, speaking to you today is truly an honor for me because before I came to Forefront, I had never seen a woman address a congregation in the way that a male pastor did. I never saw it in the Korean immigrant church that I grew up in. I never saw it in the more evangelical-leaning churches that I've attended in the past. So this is my first sermon ever. Um, and while I'm, like, <laughs> like, and, um, while I'm incredibly, incredibly nervous, um, I'm also really incredibly honored and touched that you would bless me with this opportunity. You know, my mom is here with her friends, and I have some really good friends here also just coming out to support me, and of course all of you. So thank you so much. Um, we've been in a sermon series called Her Story, where we've been engaging with scriptures about women. Today I'm going to speak about Proverbs chapter 31, verses 10 to 31, which is attributed to King Lemuel and not to King Solomon like the rest of Proverbs. Some of you know this passage as the passage on the Proverbs 31 woman. Bear with me as I read the text aloud. It's long. A woman of worth who can find. She's far more precious than rubies. Because of this, the heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. Clearly, she does him good and not evil all the days of his life. Doing her work with willing hands, she seeks wool and flax. Even as the ships of the merchant, she brings her food from far away. Faster than the sun is she, rising while it is still night to provide food for her family and tasks for her servant girls. Giving careful consideration to a field, she buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. Herself she girds with strength, she makes her arms strong. In her merchandise she sees a profit of her own work. Her lamp does not go out at night. Joyfully she puts her hands to the loom and her hands hold the spindle. Keenly she feels the plight of the needy and holds her hands outstretched to the poor. Looming ahead is the threat of winter snow, but she is not afraid, for all in her household are clothed in crimson. Making coverings for herself as well, she wears the fine linen and purple. Notable is her husband in the community. Within the city gates, he takes a seat with the elders of the land. Once created, her linen garments are sold for money. She supplies the merchant with sashes. Power, strength, and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs confidently at the time to come. Quickened with wisdom is her mouth, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Regulating well the ways of the household, she does not eat the bread of idleness. She's commended by her children, who rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also praises her. He says, there are women, other women who have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Unnecessary is charm and vain is beauty, but a woman who fears Yahweh is to be praised. Value her and give her a share in the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the city gates. So, show of hands, how many of you know this passage? Okay, hands down. Well, thank you. Um, I first encountered this passage in my mid-twenties when I was on the fence about committing to my Christian faith. I got invited to join a single women's Bible study group, and all of the women in the group were like me. They were daughters of immigrants, they had grown up in conservative-leaning families and conservative-leaning churches. They were all well-educated professionals, in fact, most of them were lawyers, like me. We did a few studies that were really, really valuable to me at the time that I, that I was you know, considering the faith. For example, with them, I read for the first time very closely the Gospels. Um, for the first time in my life. And these women were training themselves to be apologists, to be evangelists um, outside of the church. So the textual analysis 
for, was very, very rigorous for just an informal Bible study. This kind of textual rigor really, really appealed to me, and I came to admire each of these women very greatly as mature Christians and as mentors to my own journey. As this was a single woman's Bible study, we inevitably did a study on the Proverbs 31 woman. We combed through this passage line by line, and we stopped to take notes about this woman of worth, or eshet chayil in Hebrew. Eshet meaning woman. Chayil interpreted as worth, virtue, value, or valor, or substance. In Christian Bibles, you may have seen this term translated as a woman of excellence, a woman of noble character, or a woman of virtue. But Hebrew scholars tend to translate the term as a woman of worth or a woman of valor. As we read, the Eshet Chayil is trustworthy, she's creative, she's hardworking, she's a good manager of a large household. You know, she runs a few side businesses, she feeds her family with food from all over the world. She's a savvy businesswoman who buys property on her own, then sells it for a profit, then turns the profit and uses it to plant a vineyard. No big deal. Um, she makes and sells clothes, and not just any old plain clothes, but she dresses her family in crimson, and she wears purple. With the same hands that she's weaving these textiles and planting these vineyards, she gives to the poor and the needy. She's so amazing that it's not only her husband and her kids who praise her. People praise her husband because of her. So basically, the Eshach Chayil is Wonder Woman, Martha Stewart, Indra Nui, Mother Teresa, and Coco Chanel, all wrapped up in one woman. It's like an impossibly high standard for anyone, woman or man. So after every line, somebody in my Bible study would just despair. She'd say, oh my gosh, how can I keep up with this? I'm lacking the a trait of the Proverbs 31 woman. And she'd say, no wonder why I'm single. She'd say, I have to do more, I'd have to do better. And I was really shocked by these responses because these women, by New York City standards, these women are perfect, okay? They have graduate degrees from fancy smancy schools. They are really ambitious, they're super successful and active in their professional and social circles. They find time to serve a church, they volunteer, they take care of their friends, they take care of their family, and they even manage to like always have perfect hair and nails. It's really annoying. <laughs> but you know, when we studied the Proverbs 31 woman, all of these gendered expectations that we grew up with in our respective churches and our respective cultures came really, really strongly into play. Despite all of those women's accomplishments, it was really obvious by how they responded to this passage that, that they themselves evaluated their own worth as a woman, mainly by the future role that they were gonna be as a man's wife. And not just any wife, but like the best wife ever. And I was also shocked by how these women reinforced among each other this notion that a woman's worth was in her ability to be a worthy wife to some man she hadn't even married yet. A lot of the women in this group interpreted this passage to mean that their ambitions and dreams outside of the domestic sphere were secondary to the support that they would have to give to their husband's dreams and ambitions. And this really, really unsettled me, especially because I'm a self-proclaimed feminist and I proclaim myself to be counter-patriarchal. By the way, I define feminism very broadly to mean that all people, no matter what gender, gender you identify with, have equal political, economic, social, and sexual rights and opportunities. We say feminism, we don't call it all genderism, it's not all peopleism, 
Because the patriarchy that has existed for thousands and thousands of years, even to this day, we still have to remind ourselves, we have to remind society that women and anyone who doesn't identify as male still do not enjoy the same political, economic, social, and sexual rights as men. So when I asked my Bible study group why I had to follow this passage like it's a command, you know, why, would, why do we have to read it like it's a prescription for how to be a worthy woman and not a description of an ideal? They said, because the Bible literally says so. I mean, look at it, you know? They said, this is one of the few texts in the Bible that actually only focuses on a woman, so we have to pay attention. I asked them, why do we, as modern-day American women, have to follow this text to the letter? And instead of answering my question sufficiently, they encouraged me to, quote-unquote, give up to God my feminism, which was worldly and not godly. I'm sure some of you are very familiar with this rhetoric. They said being a good Christian means that you follow what God says is right and not what the world thinks is right. And God, very clearly in this text, is spelling out for you that he wants you to be a Proverbs 31 woman. And back then, because in my eyes, these women were so perfect and they were so mature in the faith, I didn't push back. Instead, I thought, hey, maybe they're right, you know? Maybe I'm the one who's clinging too hard to feminism because it benefits me. Maybe my reaction to the passage is, as they said, unbiblical and perhaps even sinful, meaning it's against the order that God created. And ever since then, I've only discussed the sermon with other women. I've never heard a sermon on it. I've never read commentary on it until I went digging so that I could prepare for this talk. And you know, almost after every discussion I've had on this passage, I'm struck by, number one, how women read it as prescriptive, like it's the law regarding what a godly wife or woman is. I'm struck by, number two, how women will misinterpret the text to keep themselves in more domestic or subordinate roles, mainly because their churches, their cultures, and patriarchy generally wants women in those subordinate roles. And separately, number three, I'm struck by how few men even know that this passage exists. So it's like all these women are trying really, really hard to attain this ideal that men don't even know they're supposed to look for. So I struggled with this text for some time. Um, but as a poet at heart and as a huge book nerd, it's in my nature to struggle with texts. And what I do is I continue to wrestle with the text until, I'm gonna use a phrase that Hannah used in her sermon a couple weeks ago, I wrestle with the text until it blesses me. You see, I've come to see the Proverbs 31 woman passage as yet another example of how God and the Bible emphasizes co-dominion. And we've been hearing Jonathan emphasize this term co-dominion very much, a lot, in the sermons recently. So here's a refresher. Co-dominion is the idea that what God wants is for all people, no matter what gender you are, to work together in unity to bring about the flourishing that God had in has intended for our creation. And I think that co-dominion is actually the emphasis of the Proverbs 31 woman passage. Scholars believe that chapter 31 was written somewhere between 330 and 550 years before the birth of Christ. So keep in mind back then that women at that time were considered property. They were considered the property of men. They were just commodities that were used either to bear sons, to provide pleasure, or to perform manual labor. So in those times, the only ambition that 99% of women would have had was to be some man's wife and to bear and raise sons for him. Actually, that is not that different from how women are taught in, all, in other parts of the world, right? 
that being somebody's wife and being a mother to sons was the highest role or profession that a woman could have had. So let's look at the Proverbs 31 woman again. She's not only married, she's married to a wealthy, influential man. So just from that description alone, people of that time would have known that the woman in the passage is not a description of a real woman. She's an ideal. In fact, she's a statistical rarity. Um, realistically, most women at the time were in the position of the servant woman that the Eshat Chayil manages in verse 15. Or if the woman was lucky, she was a concubine of the Eshat Chayil's husband. Also, the Eshat Chayil came from money herself, and the passage suggests that she has both a mother and a father who educated her very well. Not only does the Eshat Chayil know how to make clothes and run households, this is what her mother would have taught her. She has the business acumen and experience to know which property to buy, wait for the right time to sell it, and then turn the profit to start a vineyard. That's something her father would have taught her. So if you can guess, it would have been really rare to find a woman that well-educated back then. And even rarer is that her rich, important husband allows her to run three businesses and handle money, and that he praises her for it. So considering the context, it seems probable that readers of the text would know that she's a description of an ideal and not a prescription. And who would be reading this text? Not women. It would be men, most likely affluent boys who are considered the sons of Israel and who are being trained to be the next movers and shakers of the nation. This passage was written as an acrostic poem where the first letter of each line spells out something. And in this passage, the letters are the Hebrew alphabet in order. You may have noticed that the awkward um, passage that I read tries to replicate in English this acrostic. It's, why, you know, why would the passage be written this way? Why would, it's the A to Z nature suggests that the poem is describing the whole range, or the A to Z, so to speak, of the Ishatrayil and her everyday, um, everyday achievements and her character. It's also an acrostic form because it's probably meant to be memorized by young men who were learning how to read while learning the wisdom of God. It was meant to be internalized and memorized by men and not studied only by women like it tends to be today. And it's a poem, it's an ode, it's celebrating this woman who lives faithfully and joyfully in the fear of Yahweh, fear meaning the wisdom and knowledge of God. You know what's interesting is that in the Orthodox Jewish tradition, men do actually memorize this passage as a song that they sing to their wives on their wedding day and on the Sabbath. The poem's structure and word selection also make, are also very similar to poems written during that time that celebrate a warrior's exploits. That's the reason why Hebrew scholars tend to translate Eshet Chayil as a woman of valor, a woman of great bravery. Um, in verse 11, her husband lacks no shalal, or spoils of war. In verse 17, she girds her strength like a warrior guards, girds his loins. And actually, the text makes super clear she has buff arms. Um, in verse 27, when she regulates the way of the household, it means that she's stealthily monitoring the household like a spy would. In verse 25, this is my favorite line, um, when she, when she um, wears power, strength, and dignity like clothing or armor, and she, she laughs confidently at the future. It's a laughing in victory, like a conqueror would. Why is the Eshet Chayil described this way? 
Isn't this militaristic description at odds with the conventional stereotype that we have of women being subordinate, of being weaker, of being domestic? It's because this passage is celebrating Eshet Chayil's courage, her integrity, and her competence, and all she does, and everything she is. And we've seen this militaristic language in connection with women before. We've seen it, remember, when Jonathan talked about Eve and Ezer in Genesis. I'll recap. God created Eve to be Adam's Ezer, the word Ezer meaning the help that can only come from God, and the point person or leader in a military formation. God created these first two humans, Adam and Eve, so that together in unity, they could courageously lead over the flourishing of creation. I don't think it's a coincidence that both Azer, when referring to Eve, and Chayil, when referring to the Proverbs 31 women, have militaristic connotations. And not only does this connect back to Eve and Azer, what is significant is that there's only one other time that Eshet Chayil is used in the Bible. It's in the book of Ruth. Remember, Ruth is a Moabite. She's a foreigner whose Israelite husband dies young. And instead of returning to her homeland, as was a custom, she decides to follow her mother-in-law, Naomi, back to Israel to take care of her. As a foreign widow, there wasn't very much that she could do to survive. So she ends up picking leftover wheat in some fields uh, belonging to a man, a very wealthy man named Boaz. It turns out that Boaz is her dead husband's relative. And under Jewish law at the time, if your husband died, you had to marry your husband's next of kin. So what Ruth does is she sneaks into Boaz's bedroom at night to suggest to him that maybe he should marry her as required by law. And you all realize like, how extremely outrageously scandalous that was, right? That's crazy. And when Boaz finds Ruth at night by his bed, what does he say to her? He says, and now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are Eshet Chayil. He calls her Eshet Chayil, a woman of worth, even before she's married to him. When she's a poor immigrant, when she's a widow, this is after she has trespassed into his bedroom at night, risking her body and her reputation. She doesn't have a husband. She doesn't have a child. She's not weaving textiles. She's not planting vineyards. She's gleaning leftover wheat with the beggars. And unlike the Proverbs 31 woman, we're actually meant to read Ruth like as it is an account of a woman who actually existed. She's a real woman. She's not just an ideal. This real woman, Ruth, is praised throughout the town as an eshet chayil, even before she becomes Boaz's wife. Why is that? It's because it's evident to everyone that she lives her life with chayil, with valor, with wisdom and strength. What the patriarchal church has done is to use the acrostic poem in Proverbs 31, what is meant as a celebration of a brave woman, as a commander prescription for all the little boxes that a woman has to check off in order to be a good wife, in order to be a good mother, and by extension, a worthy woman. But what we see in Ruth upends all of that. Ruth is not a mother when she is praised as Eshatayil. Ruth is not a wife when she is praised as Eshatayil. So it's really not a woman's role in relation to some man that makes her an Eshatayil. It's a woman's character. It's her courage. It's her integrity. It's the passion and the care that she applies to her giftings. It's the wisdom that she brings to any role, any task, any calling. That's what makes her Eshatayil. If we want to read this passage as a prescriptive text rather than a descriptive text, 
we should read it only in the way that wisdom texts are meant to be prescriptive. They prescribe to us that we should be practically wise. The tradition of wisdom literature asks the essential question, how does one contribute to the flourishing of Israel? How does one contribute to the flourishing of humanity? In other words, we're back to that concept of co-dominion, this idea that God wants all of us, no matter how we identify, to work in unity to bring about the flourishing of God's creation. During a time that was way more patriarchal, way more sexist than ours, hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus and his radical affirmation of women, the book of Proverbs instructs young men who are striving to live within God's will to, to celebrate the heroic everyday work of women, to celebrate women for a range of character traits and accomplishments that were not normally attributed to women at that time. Proverbs 31 is teaching young men to celebrate a woman not for the sons that she will bear him, but because she has the same traits that are expected of men. She's courage, she's integrity, strong work ethic, intelligence, she's a sense of justice, she's a sense of charity, and most importantly, she's the fear of the Lord. That is, she has, is, has the wisdom and the knowledge of God. The only command in the entire passage is directed at the reader who would have been a man. The very last verse, verse 31, commands the male reader to value her or to praise her and to give her a share in the fruit of her hands. Doesn't this sound like an instruction in co-dominion? Doesn't this sound like an instruction to share in the co-leading of humanity towards flourishing? And this is directed at those in power, the men who could have practically made this step towards restoring God's intended flourishing for humanity. It's a command for them. So what does this mean for us in 2018? Let's go back to the passage. Verse 30 says, a woman who fears Yahweh is to be praised. If we're to look at the Eshet Chayil as a description of how one person seeks to live out God's will, we can see that she embodies all the qualities that the Proverbs encourage us to have. It's not a message for women only. It's saying any person, any person who loves the Lord, any person who strives to live in God's wisdom is to be praised. This passage invites and encourages us to be discerning and wise, busy with work that we enjoy, courageous in the face of adversity, supportive of our partners and the community around us. This passage encourages us to have a clear sense of charity and a clear sense of justice, and it hopes that each of us wear strength and dignity like a second skin. In any area where we may have power and privilege, let's lift others up and value and praise the eshet in them, no matter what gender they identify with. Let's try to actualize co-dominion so that we can bring about the flourishing that God intended when God created us and the world that we live in. For me, this means that I continue to be courageous in calling out the patriarchal injustices that I see in the workplace, in my parents' Korean culture, in my own American culture, and in the church. This means that I encourage women who are already perfect, like those in my former Bible study, to see themselves as equals in co-dominion, that they know that any dreams or ambitions or accomplishments that they have are equal contributions to God's intended flourishing, whether that's to be the President of the United States or whether that's to be a stay-at-home mom, that these ambitions and dreams are never, ever subordinate to the dreams and ambitions of men, that they are equally as heroic and equally as important. For me, this also means being able to stand here in front of you today confidently talking about scripture. 
I mentioned earlier that before I came to Forefront, I had never seen a woman address of church the way the male pastor did. This is because the churches I've attended in the past believe that the, woman does, that the Bible does not give women the authority to teach or lead men. And I bet one of the places that they use in the Bible to make their point is Proverbs 31. But guess who's teaching King Lemuel about the Eshatrayil in Proverbs 31? It's his mother. It's his mother alone. Nowhere else in Proverbs do we see just a mother's teaching. It's either a father's teachings only or joint instruction where dad takes the lead. And to top it off, King Lemuel isn't even claiming the teaching as his own. He gives his mother all of the credit because she speaks with authority in his life. And in turn, he passes down her wisdom verbatim because he believes that she can speak with full authority over all of Israel. So you see this passage, this passage that I've been wrestling with for many years is now a blessing because today I'm blessed to speak God's words and wisdom to you with authority when for years and years I was told that I had none. Thank you so much for your trust and your patience. And um, let us pray. Our good and gracious God, we thank you so much for your word. May we, like the Eshet Chayil, embody your wisdom. May we recognize and value the Eshet Chayil in others so that we all can work together in co-dominion to restore creation to the flourishing that you have intended. Thank you so much for your love. In Christ we pray, amen.